Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Today's episode features a recording from the Tuesday, January 28th webinar hosted by EMM called Immigration Policy Update, State of Play. Rashad Thomas, the Migration Policy Advisor in the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, discusses trends in immigrant detention, changes to the asylum rules, developments with the Refugee Admissions Program, and much more. Throughout today's episode, you will hear recordings of conversations we had a chance to participate in during a day of hill visits in December. Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations, in partnership with the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts and Province One, hosted Love God, Love Neighbor Advocacy in Action. This two-day event in Washington, D.C. included a day of training and a day of hill visits. The training day opened with a presentation on understanding our context and seeking Jesus. It was followed by a brief introduction to civil discourse, a presentation on effective messaging and storytelling, and an overview of immigration and refugee policy. We hope you learn a lot from today's episode and that you enjoy and are inspired by the conversations we had in D.C. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, Rashad Thomas is our presenter for today's webinar. Rashad is the Migration and Immigration Policy Advisor in the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations in Washington, D.C. And very grateful, Rashad, that you'll open us with a prayer. So over to you. Thank you so much, Allison. So let's get started first um, with this prayer from Pax Christi. Let us pray. Uh, Blessed are you, God of all nations. You bless our land richly with goods of creation and with people made in your image. Help us to be good stewards and peacemakers who live as your children. Blessed are you, Lord Jesus Christ. You crossed every border between divinity and humanity to make your home with us. Help us to welcome you in newcomers, migrants, and refugees. Blessed are you, Holy Spirit. You work in the hearts of all to bring about harmony and goodwill. Strengthen us to welcome those from other lands, cultures, religions, that we may live in human solidarity and in hope. God of all people, grant us vision to see your presence in our midst, especially in our immigrant brothers and sisters. Give us courage to open the door to our neighbors and grace to build a society of justice. Amen. All righty, let's get started. This presentation will cover a wide variety of topics, as you can see from the agenda outline. Uh, we'll begin our overview of recent policy developments with a discussion of recent news about immigrant detention. Um, then we'll move on to the uh, recent border wall funding settlement Congress agreed in December. Um, then we'll discuss what's next for um, the DACA program. Uh, we'll discuss refugee resettlement, the public charge rule, um, the migrant protection protocols, also known as Remain in, in Mexico. So all the bad news first, and then we'll talk about a few items of good news, and then discuss sort of the, the, 
the fact that we're at a crossroads as far as our country's approach to immigration. Um, and then we'll conclude with ways you can help make the situation better through faithful citizenship and advocacy, and then go to some questions and answers. So with further, without further ado, let's get started. So a number of recent um, government watchdog reports and media exposés have uncovered inhumane conditions, as you well know, both in um, CBP facilities along the southern border and at ICE detention centers around the country. Um, naturally, and this, this has led to a greater focus on the detention issue here in Washington in Congress. Here are some of the things that DHS's own Inspector General has found from its internal investigations. They found things like nooses dangling in the cells of detainees, the serving of expired and or spoiled food to detainees, and overcrowded cells that make it difficult or impossible for migrants to sit down or lay down um, to rest. Uh, very serious violations of the human dignity of our um, detained brothers and sisters. Um, congressional Democrats have held several hearings that further elucidated the dire conditions in many detention facilities with a special focus on the terrible treatment of children. Um, new government data shows that federal government held an unprecedented nearly 70,000 migrant children in custody in the year 2019. For a mental reference, that's enough infants, toddlers, um, kids and teenagers to overflow a professional football stadium. It's a lot of kids. That's more children detained away from their parents than any other country, according to researchers at the United Nations. And it's happening even though our government has acknowledged that being held in detention can have long-lasting traumatic effects on children, putting them at risk of long-term physical and emotional damage. The nearly 70,000 migrant children who were held in government custody this year, up 42% from the previous uh, fiscal year, spent more time in shelters and away from their families than in prior years. So the situation is getting worse, not better. The U.S. government is now being sued for hundreds of millions of dollars by families who say that their children were harmed by being held in detention. And last November, on the 5th of November, a federal judge ordered the federal government to immediately provide mental health screenings and treatment to immigrant families traumatized by family separation. The judge found attorneys for separated families had presented evidence that the government's policy caused severe mental trauma to parents and their children, and that U.S. government officials were aware of the risks associated with family separation when they implemented um, the policy in the first place. Now, the Democrats who control the House of Representatives blame the Trump administration's focus on deterring um, irregular migration for these conditions, but sort of tough on border crossings policies that the administration has, has implemented, and they proposed legislation to ensure that we engage in humane detention policies, and that's also something that the Episcopal Church supports through resolutions from General Convention, humane detention policies. Their Republican counterparts in Congress have resisted these efforts, arguing that if we take a more lenient approach and um, don't get tough with these um, immigrant folks, um, that will encourage more irregular migration. For example, in the U.S. Senate, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, pushed through his committee a piece of legislation seeking to dismantle protections for migrant children in custody. Um, that It may pass the Senate, but it has no chance of passing the House. 
advocates on the Hill have pushed for more checks on the powers of the Department of Homeland Security um, through the 2020 appropriations process that ended at the end of last year, but they haven't had much success with some of the policies that they have proposed to, um, to check the, the Department of Homeland Security. The one success that, was, that uh, we saw back in December was a bill that was sponsored by Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of El Paso, Texas, that creates the office of um, an, ind an independent ombudsman for the Department of Homeland Security to um, inspect detention facilities and oversee investigations into abuse complaints. Now, looking forward, this issue will naturally be a major part of the 2020 presidential campaign. President Trump is undoubtedly going to tout his tough policies as evidence that his approach to immigration works. Democrats, for their part, will continue to shine a light on the continuing abuses and will engage in continued congressional oversight um, of the administration from here in Washington. Sadly, it's very unlikely that any policy changes will be implemented from from a legislative perspective in Congress. I'm Clyde Elledge from the Diocese of Massachusetts, along with a delegation from Province One of the Episcopal Church. We came to uh, the advocacy training and visitation with our leaders, Congressional Leaders Day. The take back for me, I think, has to do a lot with, you know, that feeling that you get when something is so big that you don't feel like you can make any difference. And uh, I think this has been one of those occasions where you can actually give some voice and some heart into some of those issues that that are, are really bigger than, uh, than any one person. And I, I think, especially with systemic issues like this, it's really hard to uh, keep up a passion for justice when you're not seeing things happening. And I think one of the things I learned from this, just by talking to our representatives, is the process continues, even if, even if the climate is not conducive to some of the justice work that we'd like to see happen. It's important to keep a voice going. It's important to support um, and challenge our leaders in, on the Hill here so, so that justice can roll down like water. And you know, I think our, uh, our pledge to, uh, to do justice and love mercy, is, it's important. You know, we're really good at loving mercy and loving justice and doing mercy. And these kind of opportunities come along, remind us that, that doing justice is what we're called to do, to take action even in spite of the fact that maybe these things aren't going to be all that popular with our with our elected leaders. So now we can move on to the border wall settlement. So last December, the uh, appropriations process was a little late. The fiscal year begins, of course, on October 1st, but they didn't pass their fiscal year 2020 appropriations until December. As you'll recall from the previous year, fiscal year 2019, there was a government shutdown and it was precipitated on this issue of will the Congress fund the border wall or not? The president wanted Congress to fund the border wall in exchange for him signing a bill to fund the rest of the government. Um, Congress said no, that's what led to the, the government shutdown at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019. Um, at the conclusion of that episode, more, uh, about a year ago, um, President Trump declared national emergency. He, he funded the government um, and then declared a national emergency, which um, allowed him to tap funds not earmarked for wall funding, for to use that money for boardwall construction. And that those funds include 
things like military construction funds um, to provide housing and, and um, infrastructure for our troops. And that money is being, instead of being used to do that, it's being used to fund the border wall. Now, both chambers of Congress over the last year have voted repeated, repeatedly to invalidate the emergency declaration and stop the president from tapping these other funds to fund his border wall. But the president has vetoed those um, actions each time and Congress has not had, even though a majority of members of both chambers support ending the, the, the emergency declaration, um, they have not been able to get to the, the constitutionally required two-thirds majority in both chambers to override the president's veto. Now, this issue lingered over the appropriations process at the end of 2019. In the end, congressional Democrats chose not to press the issue and awarded the administration um, $1.4 billion for new barrier construction on the southern border. That's, that's the same amount of funds that they um, earmarked for that purpose in the 2019 appropriations. So there's no increase in the funding. It just remains consistent from year to year. Republicans and, and Democrats traded that, that status quo funding for $27 billion of increases in domestic programs that were demanded by Democrats. Um, and that's what averted a government shutdown at the end of last year. So that's the situation with regard to the wall. So what's next for DACA? So as you know, um, back in 2012, President Barack Obama created the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which protects undocumented individuals who arrived in the United States as children and who have clean records and you know are working and are model citizens basically, provides them with protection from deportation. The Trump administration in 2017 sought to end the program, which left lawmakers scrambling to pass a legislative solution to protect the dreamers um, who would be left in legal limbo. Congress has failed repeatedly to pass any legislation that the House has, pa has passed a bill called the Dream and Promise Act that has not been acted upon in the Senate but um, a, a number of organizations sued the administration to stop the canceling of the DACA program. That case was heard by the Supreme Court back in the fall. And at this point, we're awaiting their decision on whether or not the administration has the right to terminate DACA. And that decision will is expected at the end of the Supreme Court's term, which ends in June. So. Uh, between now and June, we're we're still waiting to know whether or not DACA will will live or die um, from the perspective of the courts. Now, when it comes to Congress, as I mentioned before, Congress has made some headway in passing legislation that Dreamers on the House side, but not on the Senate side. Back in June of, of 2019, the House passed the Dreaming Promise Act, which would grant citizenship to up to 2.5 million undocumented immigrants. Um, that bill passed mostly along partisan lines, but with the support of seven Republicans. The Senate has not acted on that legislation. It would provide a path citizenship for the DACA recipients who meet certain requirements, of course. Um, it's, a, it's an earned path to citizenship. And it also adds in a path to citizenship for people who are in temporary protected status or deferred enforcement departure as well. So it helps that population as well. That action followed months of the failed attempts, as I mentioned, to for both the Senate and the House to pass other measures that would protect dreamers from deportation. 
Now, the, as it currently stands, with the case having been heard by the Supreme Court, there's an injunction that a lower court implemented that stops the administration from deporting DREAMers, but it also does not allow um, any additional people to, to qualify for the program. So it's just the 800,000 people who had already gotten um, DACA status at the time that the administration canceled the program who are still able to renew their status and are, are currently being shielded from deportation. Now, here in, in Congress, House Democrats are pessimistic that the Senate will take up a measure to offer um, an alternative to the status quo. In the past, President Trump has said that he's only willing to sign a, a legislative solution for, for DREAMers in exchange for other changes to immigration law, such as funding to build the border wall, of course. He also wants some very drastic changes to other elements of the legal immigration system, like um, several of his, his particular bugaboos include the family reunification program. He wants to end that. He wants to eliminate the green card lottery. He, he the, all those things taken together would like would would have cut in half the number of legal immigrants that we bring into the country each year. Um, so very serious changes. And I will note that Congress at one point negotiated a deal that would provide I I believe about twenty five billion dollars of wall funding in exchange for. DACA, and um, several Republican senators, inclu including Senator Susan Collins from Maine, um, had spearheaded this effort, and they were on their way to getting it passed on the Senate floor. But then the night before they were going to vote on it, the president blew it up, basically. So that just gives you sort of an idea of the sort of partner that folks negotiating these issues are, are working with, where you had a, a deal that, you know, would have given the president all, more, more than enough money to get what he wanted on the wall in exchange for DACA, but he still said no. So it's a, it's a really precarious um, situation. So um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the Supreme Court is expected to make its final decision on whether to uphold the program by the end of June this year. Some Democrats here in Washington have said that they think that if the president or that the Supreme Court cancels DACA, then the pressure will be there for um, Republicans to come to the table to to provide a legislative solution to protect the dreamers. However, I am personally not optimistic about that. Just yesterday, the ICE director announced that he would immediately begin deporting dreamers if the Supreme Court ruled in the administration's favor. It would be better, you know, given the, the fact that the administration is, is ready and willing to launch immediately into deportations the minute the Supreme Court rules, if they would do something now, but the chances of that happening are basically non-existent. Sadly. I am Mark Priest, uh, Rector of St. Martin's in Fairley. Fantastic, Mark. And can you tell us why did you want to come to Washington to do advocacy on the Hill? Well, it, I, it wasn't so much to do advocacy on the Hill. I, I'm interested in the issue that we're doing advocacy on uh, immigration and refugee resettlement issues. And there are two sets of reasons for that bottom-up reason. Obviously, uh, Jesus was a refugee and uh, had a lot to say about uh, the special claim that the vulnerable have on us. Mm. He said, do this, uh, even as you do it under the least of these, you've done it unto me. So from the simply living out our core faith, obviously, uh, this is an important issue. 
and it is an issue that is going through a sort of a dark period right now in the public discourse. From the top down, I think um, that the, we are, as a culture, losing countless voices of people with uh, it, backgrounds that could be enriching the culture as a whole. Mm. In the, my hometown, the biggest employer, for example, is uh, someone who was born to people who had just come across through Ellis Island from northern Italy, and she started a business 30 or 40 years ago. And if you asked her why her business was successful, she would say mm. that it was immigrant values. She was uh, was comfortable taking the risk of starting again and committing to something. She wasn't afraid of hard work. She believes in family. She uh, loved the idea of the United States and what it represents. And mm. all those things were things that, that really helped her to engage with this. And it's not just financial, of course. It's all the ways in which people enrich the community as a whole yeah. by doing what they're called to do. And, and it's a horrible thing to be keeping people from doing that. All the people we see, vulnerable people who are held down by the system, are people who could be offering so much more. So now we'll move on to more sad news, with a little bit of good news sprinkled in, the Refugee Resettlement Program. So on um, September 26th of last year, President Trump issued his executive order entitled the Executive Order on Enhancing State and Local Involvement in Refugee Resettlement, which we refer to colloquially as the State and Local EO. And once implemented, the order will prevent refugee resettlement throughout the United States, except in those states and localities that have submitted written affirmative consent to have refugees resettled in their jurisdiction. So you may be asking, why is this so bad? Shouldn't states and communities have a say in whether or not refugees um, are resettled in their, their jurisdictions? Well, the answer to that question is certainly yes, they should have a say, and they already do. Um, resettlement agencies have always worked closely with state and local officials to build a welcoming environment for refugees in the communities in which they are placed and in which we serve them. The problem with this EO is the veto part. Refugees should not be blocked from resettling in a state or locality simply because local politicians don't want, don't want them there. And part of the reason why the president gave states and localities this authority and then decided to make the determinations a, a matter of public record is that the president knows that, and his, the folks in his administration know, that there are many parts of the country where anti-immigrant xenophobic sentiments are strong. Giving Putting the onus on state and local officials to provide consent means that these politicians have to stick their necks out and have courage, which is lacking among politicians, I will say, if they could face backlash and, and possibly lose their jobs for going out on a limb and supporting refugee resettlement. And then the Constitution also very clearly grants powers over immigration and citizenship to Congress. States and localities, from a constitutional perspective, have played no role in um, deciding who gets to live in the United States and where they may live in the United States. That's only a federal responsibility and specifically a congressional responsibility. The EO also prevents family reunification and delays the process of local integration for refugees. So historically, the refugee program honored the, the request of refugees to be reunited with their families or friends with the understanding that that contributed to um, the integration of refugees into the local community. States and localities could now prevent that from, from happening when the federal government takes these issues into consideration. Parents, grandparents, engaged couples, friends, those wishing to join other um, folks from their particular ethnic group 
could all be impacted by this. And the EO also prevents the faith community from exercising our faith, including the Episcopal Church. Um, the concept of providing refuge to vulnerable brothers and sisters is a, is a central teaching to most religions. Um, and it's a bedrock element of the faith proclaimed in the Episcopal Church. And ministering to refugees is a critical component of our free exercise of our faith. For faith communities putting into practice these religious principles, it's a demonstration of the genuineness and sincerely held nature of our beliefs. Religious communities have always been and are currently highly involved in the U.S. refugee program. Six of the nine resettlement agencies are faith-based, mostly Christian. There's one Jewish, but it's and it's across denominational perspectives. And so the, the, the faith community is a, a huge part of the resettlement program. Working feverishly to overcome this roadblock, resettlement agencies, including Episcopal Migration Ministries, our church's ministry to refugees, have worked very hard to reach out to state governors, municipal leaders, and others um, where we resettle to ask them to grant the written consent uh, required by the, the state and local EO. From the church-wide perspective, we here in the Office of Government Relations arranged pro-refugee letters uh, for the Episcopal bishops in Tennessee and Texas to send to their respective governors. On EMM's part, um, as of the date of the enjoining of EO, which I'll touch on in a moment, each state governor covering an EMM affiliate had granted consent for resettlement to continue, um, with the exception of Texas, whose governor announced his decision to reject resettlement the Friday before the EO was enjoined. So back in November, three of our fellow resettlement agencies, Church World Service, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, and HIAS, which is the Jewish resettlement agency, formerly the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, filed a joint suit in federal court to stop the state and local EO from being implemented. Oral arguments were held in that case in Maryland on January 8th. One week later, um, the federal judge enjoined the state and local EO nationwide, saying in his written opinion that, and I quote, by giving state and local governments the power to veto where refugees may re be resettled in the face of clear statutory text and structure, purpose, congressional intent, executive practice, judicial holdings, and constitutional doctrine to the contrary, the executive order does not appear to serve the overall public interest, unquote. We're very, very grateful and happy about the enjoining of the EO, but this is not the final step. The administration will likely appeal the decision, um, and it's possible the case can make it all the way to the Supreme Court. Please stay tuned. But for now, the state and local EO is not being enforced by the Trump administration. Uh, I am Reverend Jason Wells, and I'm the director of the New Hampshire Council of Churches. The reason I wanted to come to D.C. to do advocacy on refugee and immigration issues uh, really is twofold. Uh, first of all, the Episcopal Church in New Hampshire, as well as the uh, other denominations in the council, other faith groups, have been deeply committed to uh, respecting uh, the dignity of every human being through uh, the work of supporting refugee resettlement in New Hampshire. Uh, in our major cities like Concord and Manchester, uh, we have large uh, African, Bhutanese, Iraqi, Nepalese uh, communities of people who have come here through refugee resettlement. And that is a very faith-led work. Uh, the volunteers, uh, the organizations like Catholic Charities, Lutheran Social Services, it is a, is a deeply faith-led work. And so I wanted to be here because those programs 
uh, and the, that funding has been under threat. The, the, the programming, uh, English lessons, citizenship classes, uh, the kinds of support uh, provided by the faith communities, uh, the funding from the federal government has been reduced. Um, there's been staff cutbacks, programming cutbacks. And I want to advocate for those communities that live with us in New Hampshire. Um, and the second part goes right along with it. I, I get such an uplift knowing that um, this is a faith-led venture, that so many of the staff and volunteers who do this work, um, they go to their churches on Sunday and worship God and hear sermons and uh, are strengthened by the sacrament, and, and this is the result. And I want to uh, be here to support the goodness that's happening out of that and is being nurtured in all of our congregations in New Hampshire every Sunday in and out. All right, now this is one of the most devastating of the recent developments in the immigration policy space. So last summer, the administration announced changes in the longstanding public charge rule, which restricts immigrants who may rely on public cash assistance, also known as welfare, from qualifying for green cards. The changes the administration announced would add a number of forms of in-kind public assistance to the list of inadmissibility grounds under public charge, and that includes food stamps or SNAP benefits, uh, Medicaid, health coverage for the poor, and Section 8 housing vouchers uh, for those who need housing assistance. Not only that, but the rule also empowers immigration officers to make public charge determinations even if the immigrant the individual immigrant in question has never used public assistance in the past. So they're looking at the financial situation of the particular person, of their families, their education levels, their English language skills, those sorts of things, and making a prediction about whether or not that person might possibly in the future become a quote unquote public charge. Um, that basically means that immigration officers are now allowed to profile certain immigrants um, and deny them green cards based upon their imperfect ability to predict whether or not in the future these people will become quote-unquote public charges. Um, the rule had been enjoined by lower federal courts since um, last October, but the Supreme Court just yesterday decided to lift the lower court stay on a narrow five to four vote, which allows the administration to begin applying the new criteria to green card applicants, except for in the state of Illinois, which I'm not exactly sure why they exempted Illinois, but everywhere else in the country it applies. And some estimates have shown that fully implementing this particular rule could cut legal immigration in half. So that's, I mean, it's a, it's a really, really huge change in, in our immigration policy that the administration has the power to, to do basically by fiat. Alrighty, so um, migrant protection protocols, also known as Remain in Mexico. So this is the policy that sends certain foreign individuals entering or seeking admission to the United States from Mexico um, without documentation. It sends them back to Mexico to, to wait on their immigration proceedings outside of the United States in Mexico. Now, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has already sent more than 56,000 migrants to, to Mexico under the MPP policy remain in Mexico. The majority of these folks have been Central Americans applying for asylum in the United States. MPP had, had only been implemented over the past year at ports of entry in Texas and in California. But at, at the beginning of this year, the administration announced that it would be applied also at the port of entry in Nogales, Arizona, south of Tucson, 
Um, previously, migrants encountered in that area had been sent to El Paso for uh, processing to be returned to Mexico, but they're going to just send them to um, Nogales, Sonora, um, starting this month. MPP is a terrible policy. It exposes migrants to violence in Mexico and restricts their right to seek protections in the United States. The U.S. consulate in Mexico's um, border city of Nuevo, Nuevo Laredo um, issued a security alert earlier this month warning against gun battles and urging government employees there to take precautions. Yet we're sending vulnerable migrants back to places like Nuevo Laredo with seemingly no compunction whatsoever. There's been a lot of congressional oversight on this issue as well, but there's, there's precious little that Congress can do, unfortunately, to confront this, this issue as well. I'm Derek Scalia. I'm a deacon in the Episcopal Church of New Hampshire. Excellent. And Derek, thanks so much for being here in Washington. Can you tell our listeners why it is you wanted to come and advocate on refugee and immigration issues? A few months ago, I was invited by members of the community in which I live to find ways in which we could support asylum seekers. Uh, The idea of those fleeing violence and oppression uh, are forced into uh, detention uh, seems counter to our values as Americans and also as a person of faith. Mm-hmm. And so finding that work to be really fulfilling uh, as we're beginning the planning uh, stages uh, of uh, supporting asylum seekers in our community, this opportunity came about to come down to Washington and to have conversations with our delegates to really listen to where they are and to to offer the stories and experiences of what's happening in our name, where are our values, and to offer them an opportunity to see Christ in the work that we're advocating for. Uh, that the work uh, or that the what's being done uh, around the country uh, and the rhetoric is othering people. And uh, in this season of Advent, it's an invitation for us to soften our hearts of stone, uh, to be the flesh that God had always intended, and to share the stories, to listen to, to the experiences of others, and know that there's some place in which we can move forward, that this is not a, a this or that. This is an both-and invitation. And hopefully our senators and representatives hear something different that it provides for them to broaden the table uh, for their colleagues that may have differing opinions to welcome them at the table of discussion and discourse. And I think when that happens, then the work of justice really starts to take hold, that people are seen for the beloved children of God that they are, and that we can stop othering and start seeing them as us. That's why I'm here. A few happy items to report. So first thing is this change with Liberian population facing deferred and forced departure. So since 1991, President George George H.W. Bush granted temporary protected status to Liberians when a civil war broke out in their homeland. The laws that keep Liberian immigrants here in the United States have been precarious um, at best. But 
in the appropriations bill that was passed at the end of last year, someone, and we're, we've been trying to figure out who this was. I've, I've talked to a number of congressional staffers, but we can't, we can't figure out who slipped this in under the, under the radar, but somebody slipped the Liberian Refugee Immigration Fairness Act um, into the appropriations bill that passed in December. New, this legislation allows all Liberian nationals who have lived in the United States continuously since November of 2014 to apply for lawful permanent residency or green card. Minnesota is the, the, the state with the largest Liberian population, um, around 30,000 people. And um, it's estimated that around 4,000 Liberian nationals around the country have been affected by deferred and forced departure. So going forward, those individuals will now be allowed to apply for, for green cards and eventually um, citizenship. And it allows not just um, those individuals, but their spouses and um, children under 21 as well are also now eligible for green cards. So it's a, it's a, a great solution for them. And, and also, it also allows Liberians who have taken advantage of DACA to apply for citizenship and un undocumented Liberians who otherwise meet the conditions as well. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very small population of people who now have their fear of deportation removed and can now integrate themselves into the American family. But nonetheless, it's still a really wonderful development that we're very, very happy happy about and just grateful for whoever in Congress put this in and, and, you know, no one in the Republican Party or anywhere else made us think about it and the president signed it into law. So now it's, it's the law. And then also in the, the defense appropriations bill, the special immigrant visas or SIVs for uh, Afghan interpreters was also expanded. Um, and this is a program that allows Afghanis who have assisted the U.S. Uh, military in Afghanistan in the war to have access to um, this, these special visas to come to the United States essentially as refugees. And, and the, the law that was passed, the Defense Appropriations Bill, adds 4,000 uh, more of these visas to make them available to the Afghan population that, that supported the U.S. troops. So the legislation means that a total of 22,500 visas through the SIV program can now be issued to these Afghan interpreters up from the previous limit of 18,500. So um, another wonderful development that sort of slipped in under the, the radar, but thank the Lord that that, that happened. Hello, my name is John Beach, and it was a joy to participate in this uh, meeting with our, our congresspersons and senators to discern how we can best be an agent of change and being a more uh, charitable and hospitable country. Uh, and it's been really good and informative, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to meet the various people who gather here. Hi, I'm Harvey Bennett. I came because um, my grandparents were immigrants, and I feel it's not time to be pulling up the ladder so other people can't get in. And I am not going to just sit around while other people are suffering. I'm going to do it the best I can. And thank you for your efforts here. I'm Paula Bennett. In my heart, after seeing children separated from their families at the border, I knew I had to speak out. And I feel very blessed that the Episcopal ministry supported me in making my voice heard. Jean-Baptiste Nadiengwa, Canon for Immigration and Multicultural Ministries in the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts. Um, I've been in, involved in active activism and advocacy or immigration for forever um, as an immigrant, as a 
1994 I was I was running refugee camps and all that so I I'm, I'm my heart is in this and and um, I was glad that uh, EMM and OGR and everybody helped out to put together this uh, event and and uh, I'm I'm glad we are meeting good people who are helping out and understanding what we are saying so so grateful to EMM to and everybody who participated <coughs> Hi, I'm Sean Leonard, priest from the Diocese of Massachusetts, and I think the reason that I came was really to create a country that I would be proud to be a part of. Um, all that I see going on at our borders in regards to refugees and immigrants, um, we could be doing better. And I want to be a part of doing better and helping people find health, happiness, and wholeness in their lives, whether they're citizens of this country or not. Reverend Joseph Momita. Uh, I'm a priest in the Diocese of um, Massachusetts, Episcopal, and I came to join the uh, Episcopal uh, Immigration Ministries in support of the advocacy for the immigrants and looking at the situation in the southern border, the separation of children with their parents, which is a really uh, very hard issue to see and even to contemplate and also to uh, support what our representatives are doing in the Congress and the Senate in supporting the bills that they have put um, in the place in the House. And um, yeah, just uh, congratulate them and uh, let them know that we are standing up and we are supporting them in what the work they are doing. Thank you. So to conclude this presentation, I'd like to discuss the crossroads we face as a country in the year 2020. As you know well, this year is um, presidential election. Congress is paralyzed by sharp divisions between the two chambers, the House controlled by the Democrats, the Senate controlled by the Republicans. Um, it's no exaggeration to say that on immigration policy, at least, and on a variety of other things too, the Democrats are from Mars and the Republicans are from Venus. There's just very little overlap in worldview as far as how we should approach these very important immigration issues. As a result of that, I don't see any major legislative action on immigration issues occurring during this calendar year. Um, just the, the pressures of presidential race and the, the divisions that exist between the two chambers and the two parties just make it highly unlikely, even in the face of these very serious um, challenges like the DACA issue, I just don't see a compromise being hashed out in, in the year 2020, unfortunately. I also want to admonish you all to gird your loins, if you will, as we approach the 2020 campaign season in earnest. The rhetoric around immigration will be very, very heated this summer and fall once um, President Trump knows who his Democratic opponent will be. We need to start thinking now about he, how we as Christians can play a role in being repairers of the breach and agents of reconciliation in what will truly be a very nasty episode in the life of our nation. And then thirdly, we have to start thinking about what the 2020 elections outcome will portend for immigration policy going forward, no matter the outcome of the 2020 election. We're, we're, as a nation and really as, a, as an entire international community, we're in a very dark moment for, for immigrants and re refugees. And I have 
honestly, I, I doubt very seriously that the zeitgeist of um, suspicion and fear surrounding uh, foreigners and immigrants and newcomers will abate regardless of who wins the, the 2020 presidential election in November. How can we be actively involved in challenging the negativity, pessimism, and dehumanizing rhetoric that often accompanies our conversations about immigrants, both interpersonally and over social media, and in the ways that the, the campaigns engage as well? What will we do in the face of a policy apparatus that profoundly challenges our Christian values and the gospel of welcome? Um, these are the questions we all must answer in the coming months and years. Um, the answers we produce will be vital to the future of our nation, but I think as, as Episcopalians and as Christians, we have a, an, a vital role to play in bringing that reconciliation to the public conversation. So I always want you to stay informed, study the church's teachings on public policy issues, the positions that the Episcopal Church has taken over the years and, and uh, values that we bring to our public advocacy around immigration and refugee issues. Subscribe to our EPPN Fiscal Public Policy Network alerts so that we can keep you abreast of what's going on and then you can send letters to your members of Congress and your senators um, about these issues. Follow EPPN on Facebook and Twitter and I should also say Instagram where we can keep you up to date on everything from your social media channels. You can share our materials with your networks Use your voice. Send emails to your representatives and senators. Participate in local and national advocacy. Post on social media your support for immigrants and refugees so that people know that there are those of us out here who, who, who value the diversity of our country and want um, this place to be uh, a nation of welcome to, to newcomers. Call into C-SPAN and local radio stations um, to share your views about immigration. Write letters to the editor in your local newspapers to share your views with your local community. Pray, hope, and take action. Don't ever lose hope. Um, that's the most important thing that we have. Even though the struggles of, of immigration policy are um, difficult, um, we know that Jesus is still king, and we know the way the story ends in the end when all the world is reconciled in the love of Christ. So um, always keep that as your focus um, when you're approaching these issues. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Rashad. And I just wanted to speak very briefly about Episcopal Migration Ministries. My name is Allison Duval, and I serve as EMM's Manager for Church Relations and Engagement. And if there's two things I can leave you with, um, one, we would really like you to get connected to the work that we do. We continue to resettle refugees through our 13 affiliates across the country. And we have a growing network of local ministries and supporters of the work of Welcome who are connected through our Partners and Welcome program. So if you feel motivated to support our work of refugee resettlement and welcome, you can make a donation at EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give. And then my major action step for you to take is that if immigration and refugee issues matter to you deeply as a follower of Jesus, we want to know who you are. We want to know what church you attend, what diocese you're a part of. Please join our Partners and Welcome Network. It is an online learning community and a ministry network. It's free to join, and by joining, you get access to specialized curated news digests. We curate content just for our members. We offer specialized webinars, virtual workshops, and online communities of practice around different ministry models, different issues that are ongoing in this work. So 
whereas we work with Rashad for advocacy issues, the Partners in Welcome Network is really about ministry on the ground in local communities. So both are important, and we would argue you can't really do one without the other. So to join Partners in Welcome, you can visit our website forward slash Partners in Welcome. There's a simple form you fill out, and we will have you join the community straight away. And now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Kendall Martin, EMM's Communications Manager, to facilitate Q&A. Thanks, Kendall. Thank you, Allison. So for any of those who might have a question but have not yet submitted, I invite you to submit it in the Q&A pane. Um, right now, there is one question for you, Rashad. The question is, are asylum seekers exempt from provisions of the public charge rules? Um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I know that refugees are um, and other, other groups of folks. I, I wouldn't presume that they would be because they're, they're um, coming to the United States based upon humanitarian considerations, but I'm not 100% about that. I think once they receive status as asylees, which is the way in which we would provide refugee status upon the adjudication of their claim, I think then they would be exempt as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I think I'm pretty sure, yeah, that's right. Sure, it looks like someone commented um, in the chat box, they are not exempt, they are being held in Mexico due to these two rules. Oh yeah, that, that relates to the remain in Mexico policy. Um, that's, that's different from the public charge rule. That's, public charge is related to the criteria that the government uses to determine who gets a green card, which is a, a different thing from asylum. Asylum status is a, is a different category in the law. So unfortunately, asylum seekers are being affected by remain in Mexico, but it, it, uh, the public charge rule is, uh, is sort of a separate thing from that. Thank you, Rashad. And a new question just came in. Do you think that signing up for a subsidy under the Affordable Care Act would count as government aid and preclude citizenship for a person from Syria who got a green card two years ago under the lottery visa program? That I'm not sure about either. I know that Medicaid applies um, to the public charge rule, but but when in my reading about the um, the program, it, it did not mention the um, the ACA exchanges, as far as I know. But that, yeah, I'm I'm not 100% sure about that. But it is everything I've read, it, it, I'm, I've never seen anything mentioned about accessing ACA subsidized private coverage. But Medicaid, for sure, does apply. There's a question: um, What can individual parishes do that is positive? In this situation, and I'll I'll respond from kind of a local ministry perspective, and then Rashad, if you want to respond from an advocacy perspective, um, one thing that we do at EMM is we continually put out new educational and Christian formation curricula for local congregations to use, both to start the conversation in your own faith community, and also to educate members of your congregation whose awareness and um, previous experience with this issue could be all over the map. So one resource I'd highly encourage anyone, any congregation to check out is our Epiphany 2020 curriculum. That's available at our website under one of the drop-down menus, but the short link is epistemalmigrationministries.org forward slash epiphany20. You request it, it comes automatically to you for download, and there are lessons that are accompany readings in the Gospel of John. Each lesson is not only scripture study and discussion questions, but there's also an additional EMM teaching. So Rashad does a lesson on what's been going on with asylum and migrant protection protocols at the border. Kendall and I offer different lessons on different discernment activities that local congregations can do to get to know themselves better and then to see the gifts that they might have to offer in ministries of welcome and inclusion 
in their local communities. So while the, the news is dire and often can be paralyzing, we cannot succumb to paralysis and we have to continually use the spiritual gifts that God has given us to discern where we are as communities and how we can use the gifts that God's given us to create spaces of welcome and inclusion for all of our neighbors. So don't lose hope. Um, it's important to know what's happening. The policy updates are critical because if you don't know what's happening, you can't take action. But don't allow it to pr paralyze you. Discern what you can do and take action locally. And also, Rashad, over to you for taking action with advocacy. Thank you for that, um, Allison. I, I think it's very important for Episcopalians on the ground. We want you to stay connected to us, to the work that we're doing here in Washington on your behalf. So if you sign up with the Episcopal Public Policy Network, our alerts and follow us on social media and uh, follow our work, we can keep you updated on what's going on and then give you tools to act on the federal level as well. Um, we exist to serve you guys. Um, that's why we're here, so that we can help you all um, engage with your members of Congress and your senators from the perspective of your fiscal faith. So please reach out to us and, and let us help you to, to make your voices heard in this um, issue space. Great. Now field another one to you, Rashad. Um, Marcy says, Rashad, our church members are constantly contacting our reps and are following along with EPPN and socializing developments within our own circle. We would like to do more. What are your recommendations to really move the needle? What direct action can we take? Well, thank you for your activism and your advocacy. Um, that's wonderful to hear that you all are in, so engaged. Moving the needle, that's a, that's a really tough question because there are just so many roadblocks of the way, so many challenges. But I think that the important thing is that you always have to keep your um, politicians informed about your disdain for what's going on. Don't ever let up in telling them like, we don't, we don't agree with this, not, not in my name, will you be caging children and separating them from their parents and refouling people into terrible situations and all that sort of thing. Make your voices heard in any way that you can. There are lots of, in addition to sending letters and whatnot, there are lots of demonstrations and vigils and picketing and all that sort of thing as perfectly wonderful ways of engaging in public advocacy that you can get involved with in your local community and here in Washington, um, there's always someone protesting something here in DC. <laughs> You're welcome to, to join in. Uh, and that's, I think that, that sort of thing is very important that people, that, that politicians know that their constituents are concerned about these issues and want them to confront the, the problems that we see to, and just to know that, that we, we don't agree with this. And I'll just add to that. Some things we often hear are, Perhaps you have a legislator who is positive or is in sync with your own values and views of these issues. And so you might say, oh, they're in sync with me, so I don't need to reach out to them. No, no. <laughs> and similarly, if you have a legislator who is very at odds with your own values and beliefs about these issues, on both counts, you have to continue to make your voices heard. So don't let a seemingly intransigent legislator stop you from lifting your voice or someone who's always going to speak with the voice you wish that, that they would. On both counts, you always have to be lifting your voice up. Just to strengthen what you said, Rashad, <laughs> everyone must lift their voice. <laughs> and another question, um, Zachary says, sorry I came on late if this hasn't been covered. How have Muslim refugees been affected by policy programs in the last year or so, and how can we be advocates for them? That's a very good question. Actually, um, was it, is it today? I think today is the anniversary of the, the Muslim ban, the third anniversary, the temporary Muslim ban. 
it was supposed to be, you know, a short pause. <laughs> so that's been, you know, the, the ban on from Muslim majority countries that the administration implemented at the very beginning of the Trump presidency has been a, a big issue. And then the administration recently, I think the president announced at the Davos conference that he's planning to add countries to that list. They've, nothing formal has come out yet, but that is obviously something that is ongoing. And then as far as the refugee program is concerned as well, the, the refugees that we bring in is heavily focused away from some of the Muslim countries like Syria, like Iraq, etc., more towards bringing in uh, persecuted Christians, for instance, which, I mean, obviously is wonderful. We, we want to support persecuted people of the Christian faith and bring them into the country as well, but we should not be discriminating against Muslim refugees as well. Muslims are, uh, their religious freedom is, is being denied in many parts of the world, India, Western China, in Myanmar. I mean, there's a, there are many places in the world where um, the religious freedom and, and human rights of Muslims are being uh, trampled upon, and we have to stand up for, for them as well. So we would never want to just have a policy. I mean, this administration is very concerned for, I think, obvious reasons with the influence of evangelical Christians on um, the policies. They're very concerned about Christian refugees and Christian persecution around the world. And Christian persecution is absolutely an issue that should be confronted, but not to the exclusion of other faith communities that are also facing persecution around the world. Thank you, Rashad. And I think both of you will be able to speak to this one based on the resources that come out of both EMM and, and OGR. Um, given that there are these different categories, asylum seeker, refugee, et cetera, what resources are there for understanding the different legal statuses of people broadly identified as migrants? The asylum, uh, the toolkit. <laughs> um, we didn't include this um, audience in the slideshow today, but we will include it in the follow-up email that you'll receive. Back in October 2019, EMM released our very first version of Supporting Asylum Seekers, a toolkit for congregations. And that's one of our most comprehensive resources we've ever put out. It's focused specifically on different ministry models to support asylum seekers in the interior of the country. However, there's a long list of definitions and there's also a section that describes forced displacement globally and the differences between refugees and asylum seekers, which really comes down to where are you located and where are you asking for support and safety? Right. Um, but both categories of people are seeking safety and protection because they've been persecuted on account of protected grounds. Right. Yeah, and that's a it's an important distinction to make. Just to just uh, quickly to clarify, so a refugee is a person who is currently outside of the United States in a third country, not in their homeland. Uh, they've been displaced from their homeland. They could be in a refugee camp or something like that, and then they are resettled through the United Nations to a third country like the United States or Canada or or any other uh, Western country that participates in uh, third country resettlement. Um, after a long, rigorous process of vetting and screening before they ever get placed in a third country and they don't get to decide which third country that they are, they are resettled in versus an asylum seeker who is a person who shows up here in the United States at a port of entry, either a land border like the U.S.-Mexico border or at an airport or a seaport, and then uh, presents themselves to an immigration officer and claiming that they they face a fear of persecution back home, which we would, um, and they they are seeking asylum um, while they are on U.S. soil. So that's the basically the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. Thank you, Rashad. And there's another question regarding asylum. 
Linda asks, I understand that asylum seekers must wait 150 days after applying for asylum before submitting an application for a work permit. In the past, I believe that the work permit application had to be processed within 30 days, but I believe that there is no longer a time limit on this. How long are work permits taking for processing? That's a good question. The administration announced a, a, a rule change back in the fall that would um, remove this time limit. You know, she's right. Um, the time limit had been, I think, 30 days uh, for work permits, but the administration wants to remove that time limit. I have not checked recently on the status of that. I, I'd imagine that someone's going to sue to, to that seems to be the, <laughs> the common thing whenever the administration makes any of these changes. But the last I heard, the administration had, had gone, is going through the, the rulemaking um, process to, to make that change, but it has not been implemented yet. And I wanted to lift up uh, related to advocacy that Tom Hampson said two additional things to do, assist with the 2020 census, be sure everyone is counted, and also to assist in voter registration, especially among vulnerable communities. Thank you, Tom. And Rashad, there's a question regarding advocacy. Um, is it worthwhile to advocate with legislators from another state, not my own? So will Mitch McConnell's staff read my email from California? Honestly, if you're not a constituent, usually it's not worth the effort. It, it may be a little different for someone like Senator McConnell, who is, a, is in the leadership of the Senate. But generally speaking, they don't listen to, or they, they're less apt, unless you're representing an organization like for instance, I go and meet with members from across the country because when I'm going in, I'm representing the Episcopal Church as an organization, but as just a, a regular person in your, your community, unless you're representing like a, an entity larger than yourself, they, they don't normally pay much attention to people who are not their constituents because they don't, I mean, you, you can't vote on whether or not they stay in office. So, so they, they're more focused on hearing from people that they actually represent. Thank you, Rashad. Um, and I, this is related to, I think, something you addressed earlier, but, but perhaps she's asking a little bit of a different question, which is how we can support the border churches who are actually doing the assisting of migrants. That's a wonderful question. Um, first thing I would say is make sure you're getting connected to EMM because we put out news about what's going on in border dioceses. The different Episcopal dioceses along the border on their websites, they have funds and different ministries that are taking action along the border. The Diocese of the Rio Grande, for example, is supporting shelters right across the river. It's it's as easy as looking at your Episcopal geography and figuring out which diocese are all on the border. How do I support ministries that are going on in border towns on both sides? So please do just take that time to Google your Episcopal brothers and sisters across the country and also join our network as well. Yeah, that's very important. I think from a, from a faith perspective, we're interfacing with the, the bishops and the, the, the folks who, who are part of the Episcopal church in the border states and are actively engaged in ministry there. I think that that, you know, as someone like myself who's engaged in advocacy at a very high level with politicians and political staffers and that sort of thing, from a policy perspective, I am often very heartened and moved by the ways in which members of our church are engaged on the ground in ministry with these folks who are in these, these very vulnerable positions. And the work of church organs like the Episcopal Diocese of Rio Grande is very, very important because they are, they are on the ground every day assisting the individuals who are caught in the, the web of, of all of these policies and whose lives are being endangered by them. So um, anything you can do to support their ministry through your prayers, through your money, um, your, your donations and whatnot, um, 
I'm sure that they would be very grateful for that. And before Allison closes out right at the hour, um, I wanted to mention that someone had brought up the poster of the Holy Family behind Allison and you know, many people are anxious to have one um, at their church, and Allison can speak to the best way to go about procuring one. Sure. So it's as simple as reaching out to EMM and sending me an email. Um, amazingly enough, shipment of those posters happens from my remote office in my home <laughs> in Kentucky. Um, so please do just reach out to us, stay in touch with our ministry, the work that we do. I'm happy to send you a poster. So PiscopalMigrationMinistries.org. You can contact us, and I can send you a poster as soon as tomorrow. All right, and I'm going to transition us now to the ways to get in contact with us. Um, with all of our webinars, we always record them. We always send out the replay to everyone who's registered. So in the future, if you want to attend but you can't join the live um, the live event, please do just register, and we'll send you the video. You can find Episcopal Migration Ministries at EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org on social media. We are EMM Refugees, and all of our videos, including webinar replays, are on our Vimeo channel, vimeo.com forward slash EMM Refugees. And then, Rashad, do you want to tell us all about the Episcopal Public Policy Network? Yes, so the Episcopal Public Policy Network is our grassroots advocacy network for Episcopalians to keep you up to date on what's going on here in Washington and um, engaged with advocacy with our, your lawmakers. And you can um, access um, our site at advocacy.episcopalchurch.org and um, on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we are at the EPPN. So to keep up with us that way, uh, we encourage you to connect with us on all of your social channels. Thank you all so much. And thanks Rashad for a great presentation. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope that today's episode made you feel moved to action. Join in the work of Welcome by making a donation to EMM. No gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>